0: Hello my lovely listeners, I'm Dr. Mary
1: Barson and I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. Welcome to this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. Good morning lovely listeners, it's Dr. Lucy back. I am super excited to bring you the third part of our series with our favourite dietitian, Jessica Turton. Today we unpack all about research and Jess is absolutely trailblazing with research on low-carb lifestyles with type 1 diabetes. Let's dive in. Now just to finish up, I wondered if you would just tell us a little bit about your, your research project. Talk to our listeners about what is research, what does it involve, what most of us, probably me included, have no idea really. I read the paper at the end that gives you the conclusion and sometimes I'll fossick through that gives you the other stuff.
0: Well, look, I think I think a lot of practitioners aren't fully taught how to analyze research papers. And luckily, actually, when I was I think I had done one year of my master's, there was a scholarship going in the faculty of pharmacy. So nothing to do with dietetics, but the topic really interested me. It was like a research summer scholarship And they wanted someone to help them investigate the bias in the Australian Dietary Guidelines. So (laughs) I was like, I'm interested. And um, I knew nothing about actually doing research. Like I could kind of get my head around the research papers. But at that point, I still would like go onto YouTube and find someone else to interpret it for me. And then I would sort of trust their opinion. So I didn't really know how to do it myself. And so I um, was lucky enough to get the scholarship and work with the faculty of pharmacy. And it was so interesting working with people that had nothing to do with diet, but they were actually investigating a diet project because they were really interested in industry funded bias and how that impacted research. So they did a lot of research in pharmaceuticals, and then they were interested at in looking at the diet as well. So that's where it all started for me. And there's a lot of tedious stuff that goes on with research. So we did a a systematic review, which was basically analyzing all the studies out there on a particular topic, bringing the results together, and then, I guess, creating your own study from all of the results. So it looks looks like you've got this really big, fantastic study, but you didn't actually run any of the studies. You're just analyzing other people's. And so from there, I was like, that was like me sort of first stepping into research. And I was like, this is really cool because I finally kind of met a group of people who are interested in challenging what we know about the research because like the research itself, you know, we see all these studies and these headlines all the time that says, study finds eating eggs is gonna cause diabetes. (laughs)
1: We had a laugh over that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so then people are like, oh, well, it's a study. So, you know, it must be true. And I thought that as well. I thought, well, research, you know, it's legit. There's all these processes that go on. But when I was working with the faculty of pharmacy, we actually realized, no, hang on a second. There's a lot of bias in the way that these studies are run. And just because a study says something or concludes something doesn't mean that's the actual what the results showed, so to speak. So that was interesting. And um, when I then was like, okay, I need to pursue this further, I decided that I wanted to do a PhD because that would be the most logical way to pursue research. So I sort of found a supervisor and the supervisor that I ended up choosing was actually the same professor who taught me about insulin in my first year at university? Ah, Your light bulb man. My light bulb man. <laughs> <laughs> so he his name is Kieran Rooney. He's actually quite, you know, he's out there in the low-carb sphere a little bit, so some people might know him. So he did a lot of the biochemistry and the exercise physiology and things like that, and sort of worked low carb into that. But I was coming to him with this completely different topic. And I said, I want to investigate low carbohydrate diets for type two diabetes originally, because my dad at the time had just been diagnosed with type two diabetes. And I was like, I need to figure out if this works for him. But then Kieran was like, okay, cool. Go out there and see if there's been studies on low carb for type two. And as you know, there is a lot of them. So much research looking at low carb diets for type two. It is actually crazy how much it has been studied more than so many things that we think is dogma. You know, it's so well documented that low carbohydrate diets are the most effective dietary intervention for type two diabetes. And so I was like, I can't do that again because it's just going to be the same story. You know, as much as I feel that that needs to get translated into practice better, I wanted to do something a bit more novel. So then I realized that type 1 diabetes that I knew nothing about had no research behind it, like none. No one had ever thought to ask the question what level of carbohydrate intake is the most appropriate for people with type 1 diabetes. And as you know, type 1 diabetes is a disorder of carbohydrate metabolism where individuals are basically having to be their own pancreas, (laughs) which is such a difficult and challenging job. Even if you find a diet that works, it doesn't make it easy. And I was so perplexed at the fact that there was no research on this. So when you go into the clinical practice guidelines for type 1 diabetes and you scroll down to the diet section and you scroll down to the carbohydrate section, people with type 1 diabetes should eat 45 to 65% of their energy from carbohydrates. And it gives a reference. So you're like, oh, it must be backed by science. And then you click on the reference and it actually just takes you to the Australian Dietary Guidelines, And the Australian Dietary Guidelines, they have been tested with studies. They do use evidence to develop them. However, when they're doing the studies for the Australian Dietary Guidelines, they exclude everyone with a chronic disease or a risk factor for chronic disease. So they would have excluded everybody with type one, everybody with type two, everybody who is overweight, everybody who had high cholesterol. They all get kicked out of these studies. And we've got this, you know, healthy person that doesn't even really exist anymore, who go in these studies and who we use to then determine what everybody should be eating, you know, let alone someone with type one diabetes. And so that kind of was like, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to investigate low carbohydrate diets for type one. And it's actually not a novel approach So when diabetes was first being figured out before they even knew what insulin was, they used low-carb, meat-based ketogenic diets to treat diabetes. And so my thesis is just about going back to that and seeing if that can work in the real world.
1: Yep, wonderful. It is amazing, isn't it, that, you know, we do often do a bit of a cycle of things and what is old is new again. But the thing that we, I think we forget in modern medicine is that we are now trying to apply things to healthy people, to people that are no longer healthy. And what I mean by that and and what we've often saying is that the treatment, particularly the treatment of obesity, is different to the prevention. That once you tip into that hyperinsulinemic state, That you get with obesity, you cannot treat it with, you know, do some exercise and and eat five serves of fruit a day. It just isn't going to work. And, And I think there needs to be a lot more emphasis on that for the guidelines, that they are guidelines for healthy people. They're not guidelines for, although, and again, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because what I would also say is that the things like the salt reduction for you know, everyone needs to reduce their salt because that's the cause of hypertension, has had catastrophic effects for lots of the community who don't need to salt restrict, but who have because that's what's good for a small percentage of people with hypertension, not even everyone with hypertension.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I used to take the perspective that it's like, oh, yeah, the Australian Dietary Guidelines are for healthy people and none of my patients are healthy But I'm starting to think that no one is healthy (laughs) because even if you are what we think is like a healthy person, like you don't have any diagnosed diseases or you're not on any medication, you still are likely going to have some sort of symptom or ailment or nutrient deficiency, or you're just in a very stressful living environment, which so many people are in different ways And all of those things will impact your metabolic health and your nutritional requirements and mean that your diet needs to be different for whatever reason. And I just don't think that personalization is anywhere to be found in the guidelines. And like, it's hard to do that with guidelines because they're meant to be the population level advice or whatever. But I think if you're going to advise the population on such a broad, general perspective, you shouldn't be making such specific recommendations. So I I don't think that they should be specifically telling us how many calories to eat, how many serves of this to eat, how many serves of that to eat. Why not just teach people about what is a real whole food and encourage them to eat more of that, you know? Like that's all they have to do and that would be effective. And I think most people would agree with that without having to be so specific in their clinical recommendations, which are general recommendations, really. And then that leads, as you say, so many people down the wrong path and can actually cause ill health for a lot of people if they do follow those guidelines, which is what happened to me, what happens to a lot of our patients. And just back to what you said, actually, what you were saying to people about how, you know, if what you do to treat obesity and prevent obesity can be different things, I find that a big issue is people's dieting history. So they might come to you or appear to be healthy in the sense that, you know, they have a normal weight and the diet at the moment looks kind of good, but they might have like me gone through this history of toxic calorie restriction and excess and restriction and excess. And maybe they're out the other end and that's fantastic but it doesn't mean that all of a sudden their metabolism just goes back to normal and their physiology just goes back to normal. It can take many years to heal and recover from toxic dieting. And I know for me, I'm still doing things every single day or implementing new things each year to try and recover from the damage that I caused.
1: Yeah, uh, totally. And I think this is one of the hard the hardest aspects I think for women who are say in their fifties who have had 30 years of dieting culture. And I'm a prime example. I'm a Weight Watchers lifetime member. God knows how many times I had to, you know, go on a diet to get to there. And yes, metabolic rate has slowed and It's this transactional relationship that people have with food and exercise that if I do this, I will lose this, and if that doesn't happen, then I'm unhappy. And trying to undo that thought process to change that relationship is hard. It's not hard. It just takes time, I think. It takes a level of acceptance that things are slow, and and that's actually okay, like to be okay with that.
0: I think a big part of achieving that um, and getting out of that mindset is actually learning about foods and nutrients and the role in their, in your health, because I think there's a very big difference between like finding a food list online. That's like a low carb diet food list. Cool. It's free. Let's download it. And let's just stick to the food list. That is not going to work for most people. And even if it does work short-term, people don't know what to do with that long-term. There is so much power in educating someone on the roles of nutrients in our body and then where you can find those nutrients in food. And all of a sudden you realize you're not even talking about low-carb anymore. You're just talking about basic nutritional requirements of humans And when you go back to that basic level and you take all the dogma away from it, you end up finding just a real food, sort of low carb diet that is going to work for most people and something that people learn how to tweak on their own. So if they go to the doctor and their doctor says, oh, you're low in iron, they then think, ah, well, you know, red meat has iron. And I obviously need to have a little bit more of that, you know, because they have that understanding now whereas i think we're just not taught any of this stuff the the dietary guidelines take all of that away from us they're trying to do all that job for us which i guess is you know well intended but it just means that individuals have less power and they're sort of bound by these guidelines if they're trying to meet their nutrients and be healthy and then when their doctor tells them they have a deficiency or something they don't know what to do about it so they just take a supplement you know
1: yeah uh absolutely and in fact you know, we often abdicate our responsibility for understanding that by looking at a, you know, the health star rating, for example, and going, oh, well, look, this thing's got five stars. It must be fine. And you just take that, not realizing that it is often just a whole lot of processed garbage that has supplements added. The vitamins aren't coming from the food per se, they're coming because they basically opened up a vitamin pill and shoved it in. And it's quite different to getting your vitamin A for example, from, from a packet than getting it from, you know, some, some liver or some carrots?
0: Yeah, part of my um, thesis, because in preparation for running a clinical trial, there's a lot of background work that goes on and you can't just like come up with a diet and then just test it on all these people. You have to do a lot of research behind the diet you come up with. So we were looking at the nutritional adequacy of low carbohydrate diets, and we basically wanted to kind of recreate the dietary guidelines in a way that was suitable for people who were wanting to do low carb. And we're not saying we did a perfect job, but we definitely made a good start to it. And what we wanted to do Was basically take the intentions of the dietary guidelines where they're trying to give us some food groups and some food suggestions and help people formulate a diet that meets all your nutrients, right? Good idea. So we're like, okay, well, let's apply that to low carb. So we basically got all of the low carb foods, which were whole foods less than five grams of carbs per 100 grams. That's how we defined it and then analyzed it per nutrient to find the top 10 foods for each nutrient that's essential in the body. So we kind of came up with these like food lists, so to speak. And one of our big points was that we were going to exclude all foods that had been fortified. Because as you said, the reason we are told to eat five to 12 servings of grains every day is because they fortify grains and grain products with the nutrients that we need. And those nutrients can be found in animal foods. And that's pretty much what we showed with our paper because a big result, and we haven't published it yet, but a big result was basically that you do need to include animal foods. They do come up as the top nutrient dense foods for a lot of nutrients. And so I think that, you know, if we're talking about like vegan or plant based low carb diets or vegan or plant based, any sort of diet, you have to rely more on those fortified foods. And I think it's a really good point that you make so people are aware of it. Those fortified foods are not real foods. And I think it's important for people to understand that if they're going to do a plant based or vegan diet, it's not a real food diet. It can't be. And it doesn't mean people can't do well on that. If that's what they really want to follow, that's fine. But I think it's just, you know, it's one of those things people need to understand because I went through the whole plant-based vegan thing, you know, that was a part of my um, kind of calorie restriction and it didn't work out well, you know. And when we see patients come in that are vegan or plant-based, they are so close to ending up in the emergency department from severe iron deficiencies and vitamin B12 deficiencies, and I would really not recommend it unless you were probably being supported, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, and again, we could talk for hours about the reason that people think plant-based diets are healthy and, again, is a lot of advertising that's going on, the promoting, you know, fake meat. But the other thing that has happened over the years, I mean, when I was a kid, there was an ad on telly. Now, it was called Feed the Man Meat. It should have been just called Feed the Person Meat because we all know that women need meat. But the idea that people forget that meat and animal products have buckets of nutrients. We just see them as evil carcinogenic causing things, forgetting that a... That's not entirely true. And B, they actually have nutrients. The other day I was was out at dinner and I had some oysters, which I don't usually have because oysters have not been my most favorite food. I'm developing a taste for them, largely because I think, wow, well, these are going to have a bucket load of zinc. I'm going to feel zinked up after these. And so I figure you can actually learn to love certain foods based on their nutrients. And um, a lot of people know that I'm always talking to my body now about my food and I'll say, oh, body, we've got some oysters tonight. You're going to love this, a whole pile of zinc.
0: That is so interesting. Yeah. That's so important, though, like sort of reframing the relationship you have with food by telling your brain certain things about that food and why it's important because, you know, I remember when, well, actually just my clients, you know, they come in. And they're like, oh, I don't like red meat. You know, I haven't gotten to my education yet. And they're like, oh, I don't eat meat. I don't eat butter, you know, because they've told themselves this story that butter and red meat, it has saturated fat. So therefore it's unhealthy. And they've taught themselves to not physically like it because they've been brainwashed to think a certain thing about it. But you can use the same strategy to undo that and you can sort of brainwash yourself in a positive way and encourage yourself in a positive way like I may not love the taste of this But because it's so nutrient dense, it's giving me my zinc or my B12 or my iron, you can learn to love it for those reasons. And I I love that you said that because, I mean, I do that a lot with my patients as well. And it's interesting by the end of a lot of the sessions that we have, they're like, oh, yeah, I could have some meat, you know, so they already start to turn around.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Again, that nutrient density and focusing on the fact the food is is beautiful, like they were beautiful oysters and I used to hate them. I don't hate them. They're not up there with my, oh, you know, top 10 things I would eat tonight. But they're certainly moving up that ladder. And I just think whenever I have the opportunity now to eat them, I'm going to.
0: Are you an organ meat person?
1: I'm, uh, <laughs> that's next on my list. <laughs> <laughs> I've got two things on my list this year. I've got a tin of sardines that have been sitting in my pantry for a little while. And they will they will make a run soon. And yes, some sort of liver or kidney are just moving into the space. (laughs) What about you? Are you an organ meter?
0: Well, so I'm kind of like you with the oysters. Like I will just, anything that is full of nutrients, like I swear I just don't even taste it because I'm like, that's giving me so much of X, Y, Z, you know, like, and I just get it down. But I must say that that doesn't always work for bringing things in regularly. So you can have this high and you can be like, yeah, I'm gonna go eat liver. And you can go out and get like half a kilo and cook it all up. And then you're like, I never wanna see that again. you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like you just overdid it and now you want nothing to do with it. And so what I found is that a lot of butchers will mince the liver up with regular mince. So you can get like a 90% beef mince with 10% liver and you really don't notice it's there once you make it part of your meal you can start to learn to love it that way and so that's usually how I encourage people to have it because you really don't need to sit down to a big chunk of liver anyway the nutrients it contains means that even a mouthful of it is fantastic and I think When people start to realise, you know what, you don't need a lot of these foods, just a little bit of them and then have them consistently, then that's easier to achieve and implement long-term.
1: That is a great tip with the um, mincing it in with your standard mince because, yes, that's been one of my things. Oh, God, I've got to prepare it. I don't even know how to do that. I'm not a cook. I just like things quick. But, yes, if I get the butcher to mince some liver in or mince some kidney because the old steak and kidney pie in the olden days... I wouldn't even know it was there. Hmm. Good.
0: The way I figured that out was um, I was actually buying it for my dog. So my butcher online had a pet food section and the pet food was basically like minced meat mixed with organ meats. And they had all these different blends and they were using human grade meat. And so I was giving it to my dog and I was like, I wonder if I could eat this. And um, I asked the butcher, I was like, can I eat my dog's food? (laughs) And they were like, yeah, sure. You know, it's human grade. Go for it. So I started ordering my own food from the pet food section (laughs) of the butcher. And then eventually, you know, they moved it to actually be in the human food section. So that was great. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) now I recommend that to everyone because it's such a great way to get it in.
1: It is. Oh, that's wonderful. Jess, it has been a delight. Now, if people want to make contact with you, where can they find you?
0: They can go onto our website. So it's www.ellipsehealth.com.au.
1: Wonderful. That has been the most lovely chat I've had in a long time. So thank you very much. And uh, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear. I think that we've got a lot of conversations we could be having in the future.
0: (laughs) Yes, Yes, I'm sure. Have a wonderful day and we will chat again soon. You too. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy.
1: You are welcome. Goodbye, lovely listeners. I will see you again next week. So, my lovely listeners, that ends this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. And I'm Dr.
0: Mary Barson. We're from Real Life Medicine. To contact us, please visit rlmedicine.com. And until
1: next time,
0: thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.